welcome to Connecting the Dots podcast. Join us as we take a deep dive into the keys to recognizing African history and experiences. Here's your host, Deborah Calhoun. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I am your host, Deborah Calhoun, and this is a podcast where we will dig deeper into a range of subjects and events key to understanding the African global community's history, experience, both at home and abroad. Today we'll be discussing a bit uh, some of the issues around critical race theory and what is all this fuss about and why are folks so upset about it? Critical race theory is, in my opinion, a more recent academic movement of the civil rights scholars and activists in the United States who sought to critically examine initially the legal system as it intersects with issues of race, and I would add gender, and it sought to challenge mainstream liberal approaches to racial justice. Critical race theory examines the social, cultural, and legal issues as they relate to race and racism. Not only here in the United States, but we can apply critical race theory to the global phenomenon of oppression in some circles called colonialism and imperialism because the same systems at work here in the United States are also at work in the larger Western world as it relates to and as it connects with and interacts with people of color around the world. Critical race theory originated in the mid-1970s with writings of some of these individuals, and they're not everyone involved in the theoretical presence of critical race theory, but they include Derrick Bell, Alan Friedman, Kimberlé Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, Cheryl Harris, Charles Lawrence III, Mari Masuda, and Patricia J. Williams. And these are just some of the theorists who put this on the table. But it merges as a movement in the 1980s, reworking theories of how the law interacts with people who are out of power. Some of the critics of critical race theory suggest that it relies on social constructionism. Some argue that it elevates storytelling over evidence and reason and rejects the concepts of truth and merit and opposes liberalism. Most recently, as of the uh, results of the 2020 election, Republicans and other conservatives here in the United States have sought to uh, attack and challenge critical race theory instruction as it relates to education in the public sector because they feel that it would make dominant white students feel nervous or afraid or upset at learning new history. So what are some of the focuses of critical race theory? Critical race theory sees racism as a systemic and institutional issue rather than just a collection of individual prejudices. That's to say that there is a system of white supremacy. There's a system that, that, that in a collective way through the institutions seek to keep and hold and analyze and approach people who are out of power in a certain societal position. It also reviews and looks at race as a socially constructed identity. 
The theory emphasizes how racism and disparate racial outcomes can be the result of complex, changing, and often subtle social and institutional dynamics, rather than the explicit and intentional prejudices by any one given individual. In the field of legal studies where it began, critical race theory emphasizes that merely making laws colorblind on paper may not be enough to make the application of those laws colorblind. In practice, colorblind laws can be applied in a racially discriminatory way. Sometimes these discriminatory ways come out in prejudices and attitudes and sentiments. Most recently, we saw during 2020, for example, the prevalence of white women feeling it was their position to call the authorities on black men to identify where black people are not acting in ways that they felt socially acceptable to call the law and point out their deficiencies and get legal authorities involved on it. Critical race theory focuses on a notion called intersectionality or this cross connection of where race or gender class, I would add, intersect each other in the implementation of what would be objective. Um, And these complex combinations is what makes the analysis more full. I think in a way that this critical race theory includes those who have not been included in, in the social arena. One thing about this theory, I will say, as I mentioned, it is fairly recent um, expression, but those of us who are activists, we've always used our history, our culture, and experience as a basis for organizing. You can't organize people from a position of something that they are not. For example, you can't organize young people by talking about old people. You have to go to them from the position from where they stand so that they understand how these things interact on their lives such that they can appreciate and say, ha, huh, I need to be active in my own salvation. The 1960s is not the 1970s. The 1970s and 80s is not the 90s. Um, the 90s is not the 2000s. So we always have to use when we're organizing as activists we got to come at things and approach things and analyze things from the position of the group of people we're trying to work with and bring them into appreciation of that context of history and how what's old is new and what's new is old in terms of how to help them understand how to be actors in their own salvation. Critical race theory suggests that Africans, in the case of African-Americans, are the subject of discussion and not the object. African-centered history uses Africans, their history and culture and experience with white supremacy as the means to understand the issues and problems and find solutions that meet our particular needs. You can't take a size 10 shoe and put it on a size 8 foot. It's not going to work because it's a different context altogether. Critical race theory will impact the larger empower community by including those who are excluded from Western history. And this is not only in the United States, but on a global uh, basis, as I mentioned. Now, what are some of the examples of how critical race theory make the perception of things different? And in my teachings in class, in my time as an instructor of black history, I tell my students that you have to put on 
your African-centered and subject glasses and take off your white supremacy glasses for you to truly understand when talking about the position and culture and experience of African people. Um, I'll give some examples of that. For example, we talk about slavery in my classroom, and I tell my students, you can either analyze things and the the experience of African people from the perspective of the slave master and mistress, or you can look at the experience of the slaves themselves. Nat Turner, freedom fighter. And you can replace Nat Turner with any of the freedom fighters in our history's name, be it Harriet Tubman, be it Sojourner Truth, be it Denmark Vesey, pick one. I don't care. You can talk about their struggle for freedom from their particular point of view as dealing with one of those most heinous systems that the world has ever known and their effort to seek freedom necessarily did not jive with what those who were supporters of slavery thought was the right thing for African-Americans to do. Remember, there was a spin, if I could call it that, during slavery, that slavery was a necessary good, a necessary evil. What would you Africans be doing if we left you to your own devices? What would you Africans be doing if we had left you in Africa, minding your own business and leading your own societies? What if you celebrated and practiced your own religion instead of what us good God-fearing folk thought you should be practicing? So this question of the analysis has to be from the position of the those who are oppressed. And if it's women, we can switch, you know, the ism here. And if it's from the position and situation of women, is how... You know, you have to look at it from their position and their 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 understanding, not to from from the position of a man who has a different societal relationship and integration in society to that of women. We know, for example, in this country during colonial times, a man could legally beat his wife with a stick no longer than three feet long and no thicker than his thumb. A wife was perceived to be his property. Just like Africans during slavery were the property of slave owners. So in order to seek redress, in order to fix, in order to address, in order to analyze the problem of slavery, you have to look at it from the position of the oppressed, not from the one doing the oppression. You'll never have that meeting of the minds of those who are oppressed versus those who are doing the oppressing. They're never going to agree to Oh, well, you can use this tactic and not this one. They're going to they want any dissension at all of, of anyone who was a, a enslaved challenging a system. That's why it was so dangerous to teach slaves to read or write. We can look at it from even a larger view if we take this question of analysis to back to when the 13 colonies were established and why they saw fit to break from King George Britain. We know that they began to chafe at taxation. They began to chafe at uh, um, oppressive laws. They began to chafe specifically at the tax system. If you know what the Boston Tea Party was about, then you know 
That was about them oppressing, being oppressed by King George and his stinking taxes. And if you want the tea, come tea, King George, come out, get it out the Boston Harbor, Boston Tea Party, independence, liberation, etc. But we know in that call for liberation and independence from Britain and King George, the African was not at the table. Crispus Attucks, first to die in a revolution, black man, freedom wasn't about him. And they said this isn't about him. But one thing about the African condition, we were able to interpret things from an objective point of view and apply it to ourselves. I need some of that thing called freedom of what they're talking about. Civil War, same dynamic is going on. Lincoln said the war, the potential skirmish to come is not to free slaves. It is to maintain the union of these United States. Frederick Douglass and others who argued that the African-American is in this fight lobbied and petitioned with Lincoln that we need to be in this fight, not to maintain the union, but to free the slave. And that's an example of that self-determination of that nation class analysis that said we're in this fight to fix our situation, not to maintain the union, but to free our black selves. And we know that without the inclusion of African-American men in the Civil War, this country would have had slavery well into and close to the late 19th century. So activists understood that. Um, We need to be part of the fight. On another realm and level, we know that Frederick Douglass supported the 15th Amendment. Now, the 15th Amendment gave men the right to vote. At the time when it was being discussed, Frederick Douglass was working with Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Alice Paul, Lucy Stone, and other white women activists who were arguing for the suffrage, the vote for women. And they they suggested, Fred, you can't support this. Now, I'm paraphrasing. We won't find this in any text or any document. But we know that there were many letters written between Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others over why you could not or should not support the 15th Amendment. And Frederick Douglass's analysis was that this piece of legislation is important because it changes the social and political status of men from non-participatory to participating in the system. And if that is so significant that that part of the the population can have a political voice, I'm going to stand with my people. And the 15th Amendment, even though it's limited, even though it's not sufficient, we need to support it and get what we can. And the the icing on the cake here, if you will, is that when it came to the passage of the 19th Amendment, which gives women the right to vote, there was a very much racist strain in the women's movement that said, well, you black women don't know how to vote. We don't know if we want y'all voting. And you immigrant women, we don't know, know if we want y'all voting. And definitely you Native American women, we don't want you voting either because we don't know if you'll vote or you're not educated enough. You're not sophisticated enough to take this thing called the suffrage and do with it the way we want you to think. So there were people who were against indigenous women, black women, immigrant women from voting. And we know that that would not come to pass in terms of women getting the right to vote until 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment. So this question of the analysis in terms of critical race theory is arguing that you have to talk about oppression from the position of the people who are oppressed and not the people doing the oppressor. 
Um, I will say that critical race theory, as it relates to my students, because I have a lot of white students in my classroom, and this is not to make them at all feel bad, but rather make them appreciate what white supremacy has done, not only to the oppressed, but what it's done to them, giving them a false sense of superiority, because we know there is but one race, the human race. But it was white supremacy that made these divisions and rankings and rankings and uh, um, levels of society who's on top and who's on bottom. So it equalizes the playing field and make folks understand this is the depth to which that white supremacy goes because it touches all our institutions. It touches all the social constructs and it gives folks the idea that it's okay, for example, to put your foot on a black man's neck for eight minutes and 32 seconds and think it's okay to do that. Removing his humanity from him and someone having that power over someone else. So these are just some of the pieces and parts of critical race theory. Four things I'd like to leave us with today. That African people always have to be the subject of their history and not the object. They must be the center of the discussion, not peripheral. Second, the response to racism, the response to national issues, class issues, gender issues will not ever come from the position of those who do the oppressing. Thirdly, African people globally deal with nation class gender oppression around the world. And the systemic presence of oppression keeps going because it's very subtle and very much invisible, but very visible. And lastly, that African solutions must come from African people with them as the subject and the solution holders themselves. We have to be actors in our own salvation. So that's just a little bit of information today as we unpacked critical race theory. I would encourage everyone to take on this charge, to look at it and involve themselves in the information about it and not just believe the hype. I want to remind you that I am your host, Deborah Calhoun, and I want you to use freely of any information that you've heard today here with this podcast in your daily travels and work and discussion with your uh, family members and with other people who are in your sphere of influence. Remember to each one, teach one, rinse and repeat. Each one, teach one, rinse and repeat. You may follow me if you choose on any of the following social media platforms. On Facebook, I am Designs by Deborah Calhoun. On YouTube, I am Diamond in the Rough, two words. On Instagram, I am Rough Diamond 824. And on Twitter, I am History Sister. And I will see you again next time. Connecting the Dots podcast. Join us as we take a deep dive into the keys to recognizing African history and experiences. Here's your host, Deborah Calhoun. Welcome to Connecting the Dots. I am your host, Deborah Calhoun, and this is a podcast where we will dig deeper into a range of subjects and key events in understanding the African global community's history, experience, 
at home and abroad. Today we'll be discussing Juneteenth. The background, is it necessary to officialize it? And whose flag is we flying when we celebrate that? Just to give us a bigger background on Juneteenth, and possibly by the time of this podcast, Juneteenth has already passed. We all are in the afterglow of it. Uh, We know President Biden has signed legislation that makes it an official national holiday. And I thought that in order for us to really do the things that we do, it is important that we know why we do what we do. So some of the background, I think, is very appropriate but during the African or during the American Civil War, we know that President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that slave, declaring that slavery would end in those states in rebellion against the Union in January 1st of 1863. Because things would have it, we know the word didn't get out to everyone and the whole importance of Juneteenth and its significance in that it is related to General George Granger's General Order Number 3, which stated particularly some of the context of who is free. And this was in Texas, mind you, Galveston. And in it, he says that the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. So when you're a hired laborer, does that mean you get a paycheck? I'm just wondering, because I don't know. So in commemoration of that emancipation and to mark that date where the last Southern African-Americans gained their freedom in those areas that were still under rebellion, African-Americans in Galveston began to celebrate the Juneteenth holiday. It occurred on, in June of every year since 1865. Um, first done at Galveston, Texas, because we know Galveston being one of the last places where they heard the word about freedom. They were the last to hear of it. And in fact, many in Galveston of African-American descent did not hear of emancipation until the passage of the 13th Amendment passed in 1865. So basically they got the word late. So two years after Emancipation Proclamation, in many parts of the country, It's known as Emancipation Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, um, celebrated in all kinds of ways across the country. And there's a mashup, if you will, of not only the African-American experience, but the the Caribbean African experience, because many in the Caribbean were here. Think Haiti, think Jamaica, and Juba Day, Jubilation, all of these things are kind of mashed into what we now know of as Juneteenth. But what we know after the first Juneteenth, that the African-American community began to build, began to invent, began to use their inventiveness and grow community organizations and institutions. 
Now, in fact, in one part of uh, my neck of the woods, woods in Ohio, there's a town called Gallipolis. And residents in Gallipolis, Ohio, began holding their particular commemoration of the Emancipation Proclamation as early as 1863. And in fact, that community is the oldest, longest-running commemoration of Emancipation Proclamation Day in the United States. You can go to uh, Gallup Police now. It's all the way at the bottom of the state, right next to West Virginia. But they still celebrate Emancipation Day slash Juneteenth to this day. Now, to bring ourselves at least to a little bit of work forward, because we know that Juneteenth took on a, a bit of a significance, I think, after the murder of um, George Floyd. We all experienced a summer of our discontent last year in June 2020. Um, Folks celebrated it as a reaffirmation of African history, culture, and expression of, of, of positive culture. We know that most recently, as of a couple of weeks ago, President Biden signed the uh, Juneteenth uh, legislation acknowledging that Juneteenth would be a national holiday on June 19th. Um, we don't know what that means. We know that at the same time, many businesses, Target, Amazon, Walmart, they gave their employees June 5th, June 19th last year, Juneteenth, off as a day of acknowledgement and appreciation of African history. Now, in this development, there's also come to the surface several flags. Like, I'm sure if you just Google Juneteenth flag, you'll see them in your browser, whether it's Chrome or whether it's Firefox. Just Google it and find it. There's one so-called the official Juneteenth flag, which is basically a red, white, and blue flag with a star, excuse me, a white star in the center representing Texas, but it's red, white, and blue. There's also different alliterations of the American flag painted red, black, and green for um, a green field with black stars, and the bars are black and red. And you also will see a mix of a Pan-African, more oriented flag with red, black, green, and gold with an African continent on it and stars and a fist and a red, uh, green, and gold color bar on a black background. But I tend to lean toward and appreciate the flag created by Marcus Mosiah Garvey of the United Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League. That is the red, the black, and the green, which is the flag that I see, or in my community, I saw most flying for Juneteenth. Red for the blood, black for the people or unity, people or unity, and green for the land, Africa, but that indeed is our home, our motherland. One thing um, I think as we talk about and think and look about, look at how possibly this can become a big rush to commodify Juneteenth, just like sometimes what happens in terms of Kwanzaa. We see Kwanzaa cards, we see Kwanzaa setups. Um, One thing I think we should be aware of that make sure that the information and the knowledge is part of the dynamic as we celebrate Juneteenth. So some things in common that I've noticed, not only with Juneteenth in my community, but where I know friends of mine celebrate Juneteenth in different parts of the country. Local-based, community-driven, acknowledges the struggle of African-American people. That is, the struggle is from the bottom up, not necessarily a top-down uh, presentation. It's intergenerational. 
including our youth, including our elders, including the participation of that community, be it a pageant, be it a parade, be it a, 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 a skill set in terms of Texas with the presence of black rodeo men and women that are in that part of the country, be it a mix of the Caribbean uh, uh, influence in terms of in communities out east or west. But it's always youth driven and educational motivated. There's always that key part of the dialogue and uh, the discussion. So this is not everything there is to know about Juneteenth, but it's some things to consider as we think about who gets to commodify the holiday, who gets to benefit, and who does not. If we're not going to drive or seek of that development, then, as my father would say, there's a skunk in the woodshed and we need to flush him out. So today we discuss the Juneteenth holiday briefly, its history, and some of the 2021 developments. Three takeaways that I'd like to leave us with today. That Juneteenth was and is a celebration, first, of our communities and our abilities to survive one of the most horrific crimes against humanity that has ever been known. Secondly, Juneteenth is informal without the official recognition of the federal government. It is also, uh, lastly, a part of our history and struggle against racism and oppression, and it is not to be commodified. And if I could say as a final note, I remember when they were talking about the MLK holiday. It took 10 years of discussion to get that to be an acknowledged holiday. So a year, uh, let's really rethink that, but let's always keep this holiday as a community-controlled and driven holiday National holiday or not, because there is such a thing, my listeners, as a mental health holiday that you can take off and not go to work, whether you get paid or not. You're going to pay yourself and blessing yourself and loving yourself. That's how you're going to get paid. So I want to thank everyone for listening today as we unpacked the Juneteenth holiday. I am your host, Deborah Calhoun, and I want you to use freely of any of the information that we have listened to today in your daily travels, in your work, your discussion with others, as you educate families and friends. Remember, you can listen to this information, learn, educate, repeat, rinse and repeat, learn, educate, repeat, share, share, and share the knowledge freely. You can, if you chose to do so, you can follow me on any of the other social media platforms that are out there. The Facebook, you can contact me by Deborah, Designs by Deborah Calhoun. On YouTube, you may contact me as Diamond in the Rough, two words. On Instagram, I am RoughDiamond824. And on Twitter, I am History Sister. Thank you, and I will see you again next time. <laughs>